I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open, open mind. Hello and welcome to To The Republic, a show dedicated to civics, history, and U.S. institutions. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. And I'm back. He is back. Dude, you did so well last week. Thank you for covering for me, and thank you to John and Donna for, for subbing in. That was awesome. Yeah, um, it was nice of them to, to sit in, but I am so glad to have you back. <laughs> the, the, the dynamic duo is back in studio, so we are we are here and with a new episode, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, so just an update. Now we're both grad students. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is wild. We're both sharing the pain. We are. We definitely are. You just came back from DC. Yep. You're wearing your American university shirt. Yeah, I'm a nerd. Representing. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, but now that we're here and doing to the, to the Republic again, we're back with one of my favorite topics of all time. Supreme, the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. And you know, this is this is work. This is a lot of work to prepare for this show. But this, even though it was work, was I was so excited and so into the research and having such a great mm-hmm. time with it. So I'm excited to to discuss this. Yeah, and um, just for clarification, you started your grad program with Washington State. Yes, yeah. yes, I'm Washington State University um, online masters in communications. Um, it's super fun. I I have my bachelor's in history, and so now switching to a new discipline, it's I I'm I'm super surprised by this, but reading as I'm reading and doing the research for a completely different degree than my undergrad degree, I find myself way more into the reading, way more interested in what mm-hmm. I'm doing, and I'll be reading and reading and reading, and my wife will be like, "Hey, do you need a break?" And I'm like, "Probably," <laughs> but I'm super into this, um, which is which is super interesting because I did enjoy learning the history and I did enjoy reading history, but not like this. This is a little yeah. different. Which is good because I, it's I got two more years for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's good and and you know ma- I think a master's degree should be something that you are really really interested yes. in. Yes, um, and I think that's why I switched. I, I enjoy history and I love history, but now that we're doing we do the podcast and now that we do this show, it's communications is something that I've really mm-hmm. fallen in love with and 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 found that I enjoy. And I think lot. the discipline of history gives both of us because I'm in international relations, you're in communications. Mm-hmm. It it's so important to have that historical background that we can draw upon. I think so. I think so. so. I mean, I wouldn't change my my progression oh, in education oh gosh, in any no. way. Uh, his, I, rec- I mean, I rec- it's hard to get a job in history yes. Um, yes. with just a bachelor's in history, but it is, uh, it's incredibly important work. And mm-hmm. if anybody's thinking about pursuing it, uh, I highly recommend a, you know, an undergraduate in history. It's such a great, such foundation, a great foundation to, to other disciplines. Um, and obviously, we love it enough to continue and make a radio <laughs> for show sure. and discuss it on our podcast. Yeah. So, um, shout out to history. So, yeah, now that we're caught up a little bit, I think we'll we'll just kind of introduce topics. Yeah. So, you'd, yeah. you'd you'd mentioned it before. We're doing the Supreme Court, and uh, uh, Susan Galavis, the president of KXRW, kind of reached out to us, and she said that she wanted us to to do some Supreme talk about some some important Supreme Court cases, um, giving us a 
Um, and then we also had some help with some research. The, um, the KXRW's intern uh, was uh, did some some background and research for us, and uh, has really kind of really helped us out with this. So it's it's nice to have the full weight of uh, the of the radio station behind us as we as we mm-hmm. kind of journey into this really kind of entangled weeds that is pre- legal precedent. And we'll get into all of this as we as we go yeah. forward. But um, <laughs> so I I've we kind of have both picked three or four cases that are important mm-hmm. that we've, we've, yeah. we feel are, are individually important to us and we wanted to talk about. So we're going to kind of jump around. It won't be as a, much of a narrative as our past right. episodes right. have been, um, just because there is a, some loose threads, and we'll think we'll talk about that as we go along, um, that tie these cases together. Um, but it might come across as a little choppy, but I think it, by the end, we'll kind of uh, have d- identified a broader theme. We'll put a bow yeah, on we'll it. we'll put a nice bow on it. <laughs> So you and I were talking a little bit a la- uh, last night back and forth about this topic, and we kind of found some three main themes with the cases mm-hmm. that we chose. And I think that it, we'll start with those themes, and that, that'll be the organization of this episode. Yeah. So first we'll start with, um, we each chose, like you said, different cases that we found interesting or thought were important. Uh, I think we should start with, and it's not necessarily in a timeline, but it kind yeah. of is, but we'll start with uh, the foundational cases, which are ones that you pick, which totally fit your personality <laughs> and what you're interested in, and that doesn't surprise they're incredibly, me. <laughs> they'll be incredibly dry to most people, but they're, they're important. They are important. And the um, second one will be law, which yeah. is the ones that yeah. you, you took on. Well, I don't know why. It's so interesting that we, we chose the ones that we did. I mean, for me, it makes sense. Okay, well, yeah, Jake would choose the foundational <laughs> ones. But then me, I'm like, oh, this sounds so interesting. Oh, this sounds so interesting. So I don't know why I chose the ones centered around law, but I chose two that when I when I think about them, I think that they're so important to, to how things operate yeah. today. That that's why I chose them, um, but then the third theme is civil rights. So they're all very mm-hmm. important. Um, we, but it's just yeah, and, and you and I, I both picked cases from the civil rights. So civil like rights, it's going to yeah. kind of go with the flow. It'll be like I'll 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 start <laughs> and then Jeff and then we'll and then we'll end yep. with both kind of uh, coming together and and talking Perfect. about some uh, some of the same stuff. Um, just just kind of the th- we're talking about themes. Um, I just keep this in mind as we're especially for Marbury versus Madison and McCullough mm-hmm. v. Maryland, which is the, the two that I'll start with the two cases that I'll start with. And they're, they're both yeah. early Republic cases that really set the tone for, um, for this country in terms of framing the, the federal government, because the constitution, this is one of the things I want to bring up is the constitution is a short document. And really mm-hmm. you can, you can see the political realities as today as being more of a process of, judicial precedent and review and um, being stacked on top of each other and filling in those gaps and interpreting things that the United, that the constitution just was silent on or was, amb- you know, had ambiguity over. So mm-hmm. keeping that in mind, as we go through these cases, it's really important to understand that without legal, without legal review, without, without the courts, a lot of this stuff wouldn't have been interpreted right. today. So right. really it's important that we understand that norms play a huge part in our society. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those norms are set up with, um, you know, through this court process. Right. Right. So with that, we'll start with um, my first case, which mm-hmm. was um, Marbury versus Madison. Okay. So okay. In, in 18, so I'll just give a background. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having, so having lost the election of 1800 to Thomas Jefferson, outgoing president John Adams appointed several dozen Federalist, uh, Federalist judges to the newly created circuit court and justice of justice of the peace positions. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in, in eight, um, 1789, but within the first year of the, of the constitution being passed, 
Congress passed a law called the um, Judiciary Act of 1789, which set up the federal court system. We talked about this when we were talking about the branches of the U.S. government episode, right, where right. Article Three just sets up the Supreme Court, just states that there is a mm-hmm. Supreme Court, but all of the federal, all of the other federal judges that we see today, the circuit courts, that was set up by the Congress because the, the Constitution does not set up the federal court system. It just sets up the Supreme Court. So Congress has the right to appoint... Um, well, the, the president appoints the positions, and then the, the Congress goes, um, the Congress then confirms them. Right. So uh, right. John Adams, who was a Federalist, who was leaving office in 1800, having lost election to Thomas Jefferson, went to stack the courts with ideologically aligned mm-hmm. members. And he did that two days before Thomas Jefferson took office, which is interesting, <laughs> which is interesting, yeah. right? Like, we, there, yeah. you know, there's kind of a recent... That was kind of a recent debate with um, Mm -hmm. uh, Justice Merrick Garland. So we get Thomas Jefferson takes office in eighteen in eighteen hundred or eighteen o one and tries to stop the the appointment and the commission of some of these justices, Mm -hmm. the ones that hadn't received their formal commissions yet. He said were void because they hadn't received it. And one of the people who didn't weren't who Thomas Jefferson instructed then Secretary of State James Madison to to withhold that commission was a person named William Marbury and Marbury after several attempts to try to get his commission from the federal government uh, was denied and filed a lawsuit with the Supreme Court okay so that's kind of the background on the case um the case Mm -hmm. itself was um overseen by chief justice john marshall who i think is one of the most influential people in american history that constantly gets overlooked Mm -hmm. we always Mm -hmm. think of you know famous president presidents or alexander hamilton and other founders but john marshall is this guy that set tried some of the earliest cases in the supreme who oversaw some Mm -hmm. of the earliest cases of the supreme court and and a lot of his decisions have political ramifications and legal ramifications even today so uh um, so anyway, Chief Justice uh, John Marshall found that Marbury had the right to his commission because all appropriate procedures were followed. Um, Marshall then states, quote, it is a general and indisputable rule that where there is a legal right, there is also a legal remedy by suit or action at law whenever the right is invaded. Basically, what he's saying there is a well-established, basically what it is, he used a well-established early Anglo-American common law based on a Roman maxim. Mm-hmm. which is where there is legal right there is also a legal legal remedy but jake that's insane just to emphasize marshall's role in this is there's no precedence before him yeah so he's using all of these other uh, theories and, and ideas to make his decision yeah. on a supreme court ruling exactly that's yeah, crazy to think about all the stuff that we think is like common sense today like that's just the way it's been right we refer back to what did they do prior Mm -hmm. in the in the supreme court well he had (laughs) to look at these other theories and ideas so yeah i mean this is how important john marshall was is because he was the one who was first setting the the very grounds for american the american um so it's it's it it is crazy to think about when you're like i was doing this research and i was like wow like this guy was incredibly you know important to the founding you know kind of the founding of the country yeah so um absolutely marshall then stated uh, the very essence of civil mm-hmm. liberty certainly consists in the right of a of every individual to claim the protection of the laws whenever he receives an injury so basically saying that not only is there there's rights afforded to people but they that person also mm-hmm. has the right to seek justice or the right to seek remedy to use their word for being mm-hmm. in, for having the rights encroached upon which is interesting because the Bill of Rights sets up these are your basic rights, right. but what 
what happens right. when those rights are violated. Mm-hmm. This court case mm-hmm. sets up the precedent that there is you can be just you can be justly compensated for having your rights violated. Right. right. So right. Marshall then conf- uh, confirmed the writ of mandamus was the correct remedy for Marbury's situation. Writ is a court order that commands a government official to perform an act he otherwise is legally required to perform. And so since Madison was legally required to give that commission to Marbury, Marshall used that writ to remedy the situation for Marbury. Okay. So there's a okay. lot more other convoluted pieces to to this. Right. This issue of original jurisdiction right. versus appellate jurisdiction, and that is what kind of cases can be brought directly to the Supreme Court without having to go through the federal court system, mm-hmm. or what what mm-hmm. cases or what type of cases the Supreme Court has the um the the appellate what they call the appellate jurisdiction that is appellate jurisdiction mm-hmm. is that you have a it has to go through the federal court system before this with and through a federal a judicial review system before the supreme court can see it um versus mm-hmm. original where it can a case can go directly to the supreme court right so you, okay. we see that today i think the the trump administration has brought yeah. cases directly to the supprem court mm-hmm. that's part of and the mm-hmm. an article th- Three section two sets up the parameters for what is original, mm-hmm. and then the mm-hmm. the judicial act of 1789 set up the appellate jurisdiction parameters. Mm-hmm. So um, there's mm-hmm. two kind of there's two documents for which John Marshall is drawing upon here, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. he found that Marbury's case actually did fall under what is defined as original jurisdiction by the 1789 law. But then later found that the that portion of the 1789 law was actually unconstitutional because it expanded the original the the scope of original jurisdiction. So he upholds Marbury. It's interesting. He upholds he upholds right. Marbury's um, argument that it that he could take it directly to the Supreme Court. But then later finds that that was actually out that particular law that Marbury was using was actually unconstitutional. Wow. It's I mean it's it's yeah. Yeah, it's that yeah, sounds yeah. incredibly confusing, but and it is, but it, it's I don't know I, I find that I find that just fascinating. So basically, what this law did, in essence, was set up the judicial review process, okay. and that means that okay. a case starts, you know, with starts in the states or starts with a low level federal court, mm-hmm. district court. Then, mm-hmm. then appeals can go to the circuit court, and then the circuit court goes to the Supreme Court, setting up the judicial review process. Wow. So that's wow, and all of that—that's yeah. what came out of this. Yeah. <laughs> came out of right. this, this case. Mm-hmm. So that was that's Marbury, Marbury versus Madison. The second case that I'll go over yeah. is McCullough v. Yeah. Maryland. It was another early um, American case that set the parameters of executive power mm-hmm. and congressional power mm-hmm. for for this country, and that was the uh, implied powers that means sort of power that isn't explicitly given to the to the federal government through the constitution but is necessary for the for the branches of government to carry out their legal functions are oh, basically implied powers says that the federal government has the ability to enact laws that are necessary for it to carry out its, its mandated function through the constitution right. now it's interesting right. how that plays with the ninth and tenth amendment which states that any law right not delegated to the federal government by the constitution should be left up to the state so how does John Marshall again yeah. play this? Yeah. So he, he basically the, he uses the implied powers doctrine to state that basically what I had just said that if it's if it's necessary and proper for the federal government to this has became known as a, as the necessary and proper clause in the Constitution. He used that piece of the Constitution to then 
um, expand the role of the federal government, saying that um, if it needs to chart, as we'll see with this case, the chartering of a national bank, not explicitly stated in the federal government, but but because the federal government has the mandated uh, the mandated powers to to collect taxes and to organize a national military, John Marshall um, believed that the creation of a federal of a national federal bank was necessary mm -hmm. for the federal government to carry out its duties. So anything else that's not explicitly stated falls does fall to the states or fall or not a, is not necessary for the federal government to carry out its powers then that falls under the ninth and tenth amendments mm -hmm. um, where those mm -hmm. powers would then be delegated to the states okay. so early on okay. uh, this this goes back to, to president washington president washington was a federalist and his secretary of the treasury alexander hamilton wanted to establish a national bank because he figured with all the with all the economic issues um after the revolutionary war uh, having a central bank would really help ease a lot of the economic problems that the that the, the, the nation was having. Mm. The anti-federalists were, right. were highly against this because they thought it would completely usurp state powers. We get back to this anti-federalist and federalist debate a lot in there in, in this um, early time. Mm -hmm. So Thomas mm -hmm. Jefferson, who was the Secretary of State under Washington, wrote a lot of dissenting opinions about this. Ultimately, in 1791, the first bank of the United States was chartered. However, after the War of 1812, the, the nation fell under really economic hard times, and the second bank of the United States was chartered in, um, in, 18, in 1813. Um, but the United States only had the United States federal government only had 20% equity in the bank, so a lot of the bank was still controlled mm -hmm. by the states who who rejected the existence of this bank to begin with. So under and passed a lot of oh, laws undercutting it. Yeah. Um, this yeah. Specifically for the the state of Maryland, uh, in 1818, passed a $15,000 annual levy against any bank operating in Maryland that wasn't chartered by the state of Maryland. The only bank fitting that description was the second bank of the United States. So this brings up the this brings up the, the the original question was can states tax the federal government? That's what that's what prompted this case. And okay. um, James William McCullough, the head of the uh, Baltimore branch of the federal bank, refused to pay the tax and then um, took that suit to the Supreme Court. The case was was the seminal moment in federalism because um, it firmly placed basically the case came down that no the um, states cannot tax the federal government, and secondly, the uh, the under the necessary and proper clause through implied powers, the federal government has the has the right to charter a national bank, and then that consequently placed the federal government firmly above the states in certain areas, and then, so that set up the the supremacy of the federal government at in this really early stage of the of our of our nation's federal. right. So that is the t those the two most pivotal and important foundational cases that I that I came across. Yeah, that are setting mm -hmm. up these structures that will be used exactly t till today, right? Now that we've laid out the structural cases of this episode, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, we'll discuss more Supreme Court cases uh, regarding law. You're listening to To the Republic. I'm Jeff, and I'm Jake. We'll be right back. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. KXRW would like to thank our friends at New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. 
They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges and edibles, to CBD topicals, oils and tinctures. New Amsterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. Carpet City of Vancouver is a local flooring business and family-owned for 44 years. Flooring options include carpet, hardwood, laminate, tile, stone, and countertops. Carpet City of Vancouver is more than just a flooring specialty store. They are expert trained in flooring and design for kitchens, living rooms, bedrooms, and bathrooms. Carpet City of Vancouver can help you find the floor for the way you want to live. More information available at www.carpetcityofvancouver.com. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Jeff. In our last segment, we, look, we looked at um, the Supreme Court cases that were pivotal in creating precedent for structural level issues in the federal government through implied powers and federal supremacy. Um, and now in, our, in this segment, we're going to look at Supreme Court cases that set up important uh, legal precedent in terms of you know, uh, laws for individuals. Yeah, so the first case that I, I want to bring up is Gideon versus Wainwright in 1963. Okay. So this particular case resulted in kind of broadening the scope or or allowing more specifically for legal representation for all. Okay. Which wasn't the case prior to this. Um, there, were, there, there were cases um, that set the precedence before this, obviously, because mm-hmm. there always is in yeah. these cases. But this particular one led to it legal representation for for everybody but we'll get there okay I'll, I'll start with some backstory that gets us there perfect so the case um on june 3rd 1961 between eight midnight and 8 a.m um <clears throat> there was a burglary at a pool hall in panama city florida this un- unknown person comes in breaks the door smashes the cigarette machine the record player stole money from the cash reg- cash register and Later that day, a witness reports seeing Clarence Earl Gideon. Okay. So Gideon's arrested, and he's being charged for this crime because of this eyewitness. So Gideon goes to court for the crime, and he asks in court if he can be, if he can have a lawyer, if he can have representation, because he couldn't afford one at the time. Okay. So during his court hearing, Gideon asked for representation, and due to... um. Derry decisis, which is the legal principle of determining points in litigation according to precedent. Okay. So the judge tells him, no, you, you don't get legal representation because at the time, so in 1932, the Supreme Court selectively incorporated, which is a term, corporation, is a constitutional doctrine that ensures states cannot enact laws that take away the constitutional rights of American citizens that enshrined that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights. Okay. So this decision is based on precedence and the Bill of Rights and referring back to the Bill of Rights, but due to the precedence, he was told no for representation because at the time, the incorporated rule was that you only got an attorney for a capital offense or if you were mentally incapable. Incapacitated. Interesting. I had no idea. I just assumed that legal representation for everyone all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he was told no. So he decides. Well, he doesn't have representation, so he he doesn't have a lawyer. So he represents himself in this case, and he received a guilty verdict and was sentenced to five years in prison. 
Okay. So, <laughs> while in prison, Gideon uses the law library that's available there and the resources to appeal to the United States Supreme Court and uh, in a suit against the Secretary of the Florida Department of Corrections. Um, Gideon handwrites this appeal in pencil and on paper and sends it to the Supreme Court and they choose to review his case. Wow. Yeah. The, the, you can look the pic, the document up. It's all handwritten in pencil on like yellow notepad oh paper. Oh my gosh. It's awesome. <laughs> so they choose to they choose to hear his case and Gideon is given adequate adequate representation Abe Fortas who later becomes a justice. Okay. And he has to resign after a scandal, but that's a whole thing. <laughs> but that's his attorney in this Supreme Court case. Sure. And they're arguing that a selective incorporation of the 6th, 5th, and 14th Amendment that would provide an attorney if you cannot afford one in felony cases or ones that result in being sentenced over a year in prison. So okay. this is more of what we hear today. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 5th is commonly known as you know protection of self-incrimination. Which could be argued that if he's representing himself, he could be self-incriminating himself. And then, and the parts of the 14th that kind of refer to all of this is no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So, and then the Sixth Amendment is the right to a lawyer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're arguing that he didn't have that. And he didn't get that in this process. So ultimately, the decision leads to what well, they 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 won their argument, mm-hmm. and and the courts recognize that that with the fifth, sixth, and fourteenth, that their argument is right. They need to they need to provide representation okay. at all of these levels, not just if you're a felon, a felon, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were giving him representation, and in, in they decide that they want to provide legal representation for all offenses, not just for capital offenses. Sure, I mean that stands to reason. Right. It's, it's interesting. Like this case was so strong on the half on behalf of Gideon that he was able to draw from three like amendments to the Constitution, right? To to make his case. So I'm and and, and as you'll hear with my next case, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're drawing from three cases or three amendments to make their case okay so ultimately the decision leads to gideon he doesn't he doesn't get freed but he gets a retrial with adequate representation okay he's found not guilty okay and he's i can't remember the specifics of it but basically the eyewitness wasn't um credible yeah okay yeah so he got to go but approximately two thousand individuals were freed in florida alone as a result of the gideon decision so a lot so they're arguing that this whole this whole process was illegal and they didn't get adequate representation. So 2,000 individuals were freed after this, which is interesting because they were freed, but Gideon had to be retried. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah, that isn't... Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, that was the first case. Um, but like you said, all three of these amendments kind of come together to to make this decision that we, we live with every day and we know that, okay, I get the right to an attorney, sure. but... That wasn't always the case. One other, the second one that I have is Miranda v. Arizona. Okay, I'm guessing that's where the Miranda rights come from. Good job. Oh, hey, look at me. Look at you. So the Miranda rights, everybody's heard that. Everybody knows that you were read your Miranda rights when you were arrested, and but that wasn't always the case. So on March 13, 1963, Ernesto Miranda was arrested in his house and brought to the police station where they questioned where he was questioned by police. In connections with the with kidnapping and a rape, 
So after two hours of interrogation, the police obtained a written confession from Miranda. And I think he vocally like confessed also. Okay. Like, so the written confession was admitted into evidence at the trial despite the objection of his defense that the fact that the police officers admitted that they had not advised Miranda of his right. Okay. So the jury found Miranda guilty and then they appeal and the Supreme Court of Arizona affirmed that and held that Miranda's constitutional rights were not violated because he did not specifically request counsel. Interesting. So when they're interrogating him, they never read him his rights or told him what, you know, you have the right to remain silent. You you know, you have a right to attorney. Mm -hmm. All the, he was not told any of these things. And then when it got appealed, he said the argument was, well, he never asked for those things. Okay. How did, how did this work out? So that, it's a direct reflection, I think, of the Fifth Amendment. And I think that's what they argue is self-incriminating. Um, okay, that makes that makes sense in the context, right? Yeah. So, you know, the the question is: Does the Fifth Amendment's protection against self-incrimination extend to police interrogation of a suspect? Okay, and that's what the Supreme Court was going to decide. Yeah. So okay. the Fifth Amendment requires that law enforcement officials advise suspects of their right to remain silent and to obtain attorney during interrogations while in police custody. Mm. Okay. So this case was decided by a five-four majority. Okay, so it's it wasn't like super clear cut then. It is, it was unanimous for the Gideon case. Interesting. So the next two that I that I'm going to bring up during this episode were I think a. Uh, five forward decision okay um so chief justice earl warren delivered the opinion of the five four majority and he concluded that the the defendant's interrogation violated the fifth amendment the Mm self-incriminating um to have representation there to mediate so you're not admitting to things or or just incriminating yourself so to protect the privilege the court reasoned procedural safeguards were required a defendant was required to be warned before questioning that he had the right to remain silent and anything that he said could be used against him in the court of law. A defendant was required to be told that he had the right to an attorney and if he could not afford an attorney, one was to be appointed for him to any questioning if he so desired. Which is something, you know, it's silly, but you hear this because of cops. It's always on cops. Uh And it's so familiar, Mm -hmm. but prior to this, that there were no Miranda rights. Yeah. And now this decision has required in these law in, in an interaction with law enforcement that you must be told these things. Mm-hmm. And prior that wasn't the case. Yeah. I mean, that's it's you, you can once you get into like the weeds of these um, particular cases, you realize how complex they are, mm-hmm. but then also how important they are and how much I think we take for granted that this all of these rights that were afforded today have been part of a process that has been occurring over the last, you know, two and a half centuries. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, they're layered on top of each other. And it's just been, it's this whole process of, of judicial review and civil liberties and, and um, what kind of rights you're afforded to. Not only are they important within the, the time frame in which they're happening, but there are cases that transcend time as well. So there's, 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 there's obviously a, a time component to this in addition to, um, and, and in addition to these laws, they are incredibly important. Right, right. So, for the for the Miranda case, you know the the part of it that led to all of this was using that confession in court. Mm-hmm. 
So he was retried after that, and they weren't allowed to use that confession. But it's just it's just interesting, you know. This whole case relied on that confession, and and I and you see it today. There are cases today where if individuals are arrested and interrogated and not read their rights, there are sometimes where they're let go or mm-hmm. they're completely just exonerated of those crimes because they weren't read their rights prior to that. And this sets that stage for all of that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy that you know these court cases can have that much power. <laughs> so now that we discuss legal cases, uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll discuss more Supreme Court cases regarding civil rights. You're listening to To The Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. We'll be right back. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. KXRW would like to thank our friends at New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges and edibles, to CBD topicals, oils and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. Support for KXRW comes from the Ridgefield Raptors, Southwest Washington's own college summer wood bat baseball team, now offering group night packages. To find out more information on pricing and how to spend a night at the ballpark with your family, friends, coworkers, sports league, or special group, just call 360-887-0787 or visit the website at ridgefieldraptors.com. That's ridgefieldraptors.com. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. In the last section, we discussed Supreme Court cases regarding law. And now we want to look at some civil rights cases. Uh, Jake, you have some early ones that I think we should start with. Well, in early, yes. Uh, specifically Plessy versus Ferguson, right. which really set um, the the tone for segregation after the end of the Civil War. That was 18, uh, 1896. 1896 is when the, the case, case was decided, yeah. yeah. So it, it stems from a uh, Louisiana state law in 1892, which was called the Separate Car Act, which required separate railway cars for blacks and whites. Yeah. Um, so in 1892, Homer Plessy, uh, who was seven-eighths seven Caucasian, agreed to participate in a test to challenge the act. Okay. Um, he was solicited by the Committee of Citizens, which was a group within um, New Orleans, uh, who sought to repeal the act. Mm-hmm. Uh, the act uh, they asked Plessy, who was technically black under Louisiana law, because Louisiana used the one drop um, like threshold, like as long as you had any sort of uh, yeah. African American um, in your heritage, mm-hmm. you were considered black. Right. Um, to sit in a white only, and then they asked Plessy to sit in a whites only car uh, train car in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, the railroad cooperated. Um, because it thought the act imposed unnecessary costs via the purchase of additional railway cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Plessy was told to vacate the whites-only car, he refused and was arrested. Right. 
Um, at trial, Plessy's lawyer argued that the uh, separate car act violated the 13th and 14th amendments. Um, the Louisiana state judge found that Louisiana could enforce this law insofar as it affected rail railroads within its boundaries. And Plessy was convicted. Jeez. So the, the question, <laughs> the question was that, that this case, um, eventually this when Plessy, um, legal team, uh, went about the appeals um, went about the appeals process mm -hmm. was does the uh, separate car act violate the 14th amendment right um and we, we talked about the 14th amendment mm -hmm. in last segment um, i'll talk about it again <laughs> it's it's an important amendment yeah um the, the court um so in the supreme court once this once uh, plessy versus ferguson made it to the supreme court uh the supreme court held that the state law was unco was constitutional in an opinion authored by Justice Henry Billings Brown, the majority upheld state-imposed racial segregation. Just, uh, Justice Brown conceded that the 14th Amendment intended to establish absolute equality for races before the law, but held that separate treatment did not imply the inferiority of African Americans. Whoa. The court uh, noted that there was not a meaningful difference in quality between the white and black railway cars. So as long as... Everything was equal. was equal. Yeah. They could be separated. Yeah. Um, in short, segregation did not uh, in itself constitute unlawful discrimination. That's right. what the Supreme Court found in a seven to one decision. Whoa. Yeah. In dissent, John Marshall yes, Harlan. I want to know about that. So the, the one guy that dissented, John yeah. Marshall Harlan, who is not. Uh, John Marshall right. from earlier, he was <laughs> long past at this time, mm -hmm. argued that the Constitution was colorblind and that the United States had no class system. Accordingly, all citizens should have equal access to civil rights. Wow. So this this particular law was um, really it, it what it did is it, it gave legal legal precedence to all sorts of Jim Crow legislation and segregation segregationist laws throughout the South and around the in other places around the country mm -hmm. to um, to separate whites and blacks. Right. Wow. And then in I mean and ultimately in practice especially at the state and local level where the federal government has very little jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, has jurisdiction, but has very little power to actually implement policies. What you see is not separate, but equal. It's mostly it's separate and far from, right. and far from equal. Right. Um, and not, I mean, that's, that's even implying that it's okay to be separate and equal. And that's not what I'm saying right. at all. It's just that um, even in practice, this, this didn't even, this didn't even work. I, I can't help but think about, you know, uh, obviously contemporary context, but that dissent and how just like when we hear that, that argument for that dissent, we're like, well, of, of course, that's how we think today. But a seven to one vote, that's that was the time. Yeah. And that dissent, when you hear that argument and that 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 makes sense and that's an argument you would hear made by anybody today. Mm -hmm. I, well, that's just fascinating to me. Yeah. Wow. So what was you had a you had a case. Oh, it's 2015. We want to get there. Yeah. Might OK. As, might as well be a little out of out of sync. Yeah. My next my next one is um, reverses Plessy versus. Oh, versus OK. OK. So Obergfell versus Hodges. OK. Facts of the case. A group of same-sex couples sued. This is 2015. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Uh, a group of same-sex couples sued their relevant state agencies in Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, and Tennessee to challenge the constitutionality of those states' ban on same-sex marriage or the refusal to recognize legal same-sex marriages that occurred in juris jurisdictions that provided for such marriages. So out of out of those states. Okay. Um, the plaintiffs in each case argued that the case's statutes violated the equal 
protections clause and due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And one group of plaintiffs also brought claims under the Civil Rights Act. Okay. In all these cases, the trial court found in favor of the plaintiffs. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit reversed and held that the states' ban on same-sex marriage and refusal to recognize marriages performed in other states did not violate the couple's 14th Amendment rights to equal protection and due process. So, does the 14th Amendment require a state to license marriage between two people of the same sex? Does the 14th Amendment require a state to recognize a marriage between two people of the same sex that was legally licensed and performed in another state? It was a 5-4 decision. Okay. (laughs) The court held that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment guarantees the right to marry as one of the fundamental liberties it protects. And that, analysis, and that analysis implies to same-sex couples in the same manner as it does to opposite-sex couples. Judicial precedent has held that the right to marry is a fundamental liberty because it is inherent to the concept of individual autonomy. It protects the most intimate association between two people. It safeguards children and families by according legal recognition to building a home and raising children and has historically been recognized as the keystone of social order. Okay. And that was, those were brought up in the, um, the side of the Supreme court that, that ruled in favor of this. This, Yeah. Okay. This was, this was the opinion. Yes. Like it's interesting that they, they go and, and talk about different, like, you know, uh, socioeconomic, um, components right. to this and they bring in um, uh, you know the construction of family and, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, it's really interesting like right those are fundamental like United States values right, right? The, the building of the nuclear family and, right. and um, this bring in those values into this particular case which I find incredibly interesting the 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 two words that stick out to me there is individual autonomy yeah so being able to have that is mm-hmm. is I think the 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 linchpin in this ruling okay. for in favor of, but one part of the dissent that I want to I want to point out is that Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. wrote a dissent in which he argued while same sex marriage might be good and fair uh, be good and fair policy, the Constitution does not address it. So this gets to that that idea that you and I have talked about, you know, on our, on our, on our podcast, but Mm -hmm. the way that it's interpreted, the constitution is interpreted. Yeah. So, you know, what you're getting at is strict constructivism versus loose constructivism. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So uh, this is that interpretation. Mm -hmm. So, so some judges are analyzing this document in both ways. Mm -hmm. So I, that was my case. Yeah, no, that, that's uh, incredibly enlightening. Um, I, I think it was, uh, Justice uh, Kennedy, mm-hmm. who um, who went with the uh, who was the deciding. Yeah, he fifth. delivered the opinion. So it would have majority. So he did. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it would have been then been Ruth. I'm guessing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes. Uh, Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor, and yep. Kennedy. Yep. All right. Dang, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's that's a recent case. I think that's incredibly important. I mm-hmm. think we'll, as we, people who are doing radio shows 50, 60 years from now, we'll be able to point back to this case as in mm-hmm. the same way that we were pointing out Marbury versus Mar- right. Madison and uh, McCullough v. Uh, Maryland. And um, I think you mean when we're doing To the Republic 50, 50 years, years from now. From now. <laughs> 
we'll we'll point back to this one. Yep. Um, so you have the reversal, right? Yeah. So Brown v. Board of Education. Yeah. Um, one of the seminal civil rights cases um, reversed Plessy versus Ferguson. So the facts of the case are that this case was a cons- consolidation of cases arising in Kansas. South Carolina, Virginia, Delaware, and Washington, D.C., relating to the segregation of public schools on the basis of race. In each of the cases, African-American students have been denied admittance to certain public schools based on laws allowing public education to be segregated by race. Mm -hmm. They argued that such segregation violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The plaintiffs, the plaintiffs were denied relief in the lower courts based on Plessy versus Ferguson, mm-hmm. which held that racial segregation public uh, in public facilities were legal so long as the facilities for blacks and whites were equal. Um, so the the question that this case brought, brings up is: Does the seg- does segregation of public education based solely on race violate the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment? So, in a uh, unanimous decision for Brown uh, et al. Majority opinion was written was read by Earl by uh, Justice Earl Warren mm-hmm. in the in the um, in the opinion the separate but equal education facilities for racial minorities is inherently unequal violating the equal protection clause and the the court reasoned that the segregate uh, segregation of public education based on race instilled a sense of inferiority that had a that had a hugely detrimental effect on the education and personal growth of African American children. Mm-hmm. Warren based much of his opinion on information from social science studies rather than court precedent. The decision also used language that was relatively accessible to non-lawyers because Warren felt that it was necessary for all Americans to understand its logic. Mm-hmm. So I think that's incredibly important, right? That you, the Supreme Court felt that this case was so, in, so incredibly important that they wanted to make sure that everybody in the United States understood its ramifications right. and worded it in such a, like in having that understanding of what this case was going to do to make sure that there was going to be no loopholes and no um no misinterpretation of it we're going to use plain language to make sure that everybody knows that the separate but equal clause is no longer law in the united states right although that was the goal i think it's interesting you know they're trying to create this plain as day there is no loophole you cannot go against this Mm -hmm. um but in my undergrad, I I did research and read and wrote a paper on um, segregation in Houston, Texas, okay. where they were classifying Latinos as white and segregating the students, African-Americans and Latinos together mm-hmm. and and arguing that they were integrating white with African-Americans. Wow. And separating white people. That's insane. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they're, they're <laughs> they, the, as plain as day as this language could be. Mm-hmm. There's they were manipulating other communities and people to classify them as white to then continue that segregation. Yeah, I mean this was passed. Uh, so uh, Brown v. Board of Education was decided in 1954. Right. It was. It wouldn't be for several more decades that. Oh gosh, um, that's a great you know, point. The civil rights era was even you know really began mm-hmm. to um, enact fundamental change. Yes. So I mean this was incredibly early in the process, and it would be a long time before this. The ramifications of this were were, right. were fully felt, right. even though it desegregated schools initially. There was still a long. I I didn't mean to imply no, that, no, the, no. Yeah. that the, the, that the road had ended at that point. <laughs> there was still a long yes, road, and absolutely. there still is a very long yes. road to go for uh, for universal civil rights. This Chicano movement in Houston was in the 1970s. Okay, so yeah, you see, like two decades later, it's it's still trying to to address the issue of mm-hmm. segregation. One thing I wanted to bring up was um i don't know if we've said it on 
this show to the Republic, but I'm pretty sure we've said it on our podcast. I, you know, sometimes, oh, you know, I think we did say it on the um, the branches of government episode. But oh, sometimes, yeah, okay. you know, the the court, Supreme Court sometimes not necessarily gets forgotten or maybe overlooked. It's less flashy, you know, because of the way that they're they're appointed and their lifetime appointments. And not that any part of the government is necessarily flashy, but you know, mm-hmm. you're, it's direct representation when you're when you're voting for your representatives or your senators. These justices are appointed by the president. Yeah, so exactly. um, I don't know. It's just so important. I think to you know, they are important to how the Constitution is interpreted, and I think their role is so significant in in government and politics and society, not just today, but for existence. What mm-hmm. their decisions are and what they m- choose to decide can have effects for decades. Yeah, it's exactly. insane. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, look how long Plessy versus Ferguson right, stayed around, right. right? So like sixty years of separate but but it's separate but equal, and then the Supreme Court was essentially kind of became the the because Congress was in such gridlock over racial mm-hmm. issues, Supreme Court became that that arm that was able to break that, you know, kind of break that gridlock with the, with the changing mm-hmm. of precedent. So, I mean, they, the Supreme court has um, massive amounts of, of power, even though we may not right. think about it in our data, in our day to day lives. Another point I was thinking about was some issues that they, that they address or they decided the cases that they decide to take um, can a lot of time, you know, I mean, obviously they set the precedents, but you have sometimes society arguing over such, such, issues and fighting back and forth and infighting and and there's no precedent set and i think that that's kind of what the article is about that you that we have we have extra time so we wanted to bring this up but Mm -hmm. um you know currently we see so much um debate about gun issues and gun legislation Yes, especially in how you know, hot and, that and, is and it's the Second Amendment. It's it's part of the Constitution, and that's mm-hmm. one issue that sometimes you see the the court kind of silent on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's only been two major Supreme Court case right. rulings on the Second Amendment, and um, it was you know Heller v. Washington. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in McDonald uh, versus the city of Chicago, right. the well, District of Columbia. Oh, okay. Um, and both of those, both of those were are interesting cases in their own right because they they did set the the in five four split decisions. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court upheld that citizens under the Second Amendment have the right to owning firearms or the right to self defense, yeah. and because. Um, both the city of Chicago and the District of Columbia had bans on the ownership mm-hmm. of handguns. So what the, what those cases overturned is that the citizens... Now, they're not saying that the commercial purchasing of those handguns can't be restricted in certain ways, but they can't just outright ban their ownership. Right. Um, in, so what, and that goes against the individual's right to mm-hmm. self-defense. Other than that, the Supreme Court has been incredibly mm-hmm. silent on this issue, and as they've been silent on, on on a lot of different issues, the Supreme Court only you know has a certain amount of work right. that they can take right. up for a particular year. So I mean, things get put mm-hmm. on the back burner, and and so and they and they and they also there's also this the Ninth and Tenth Amendment mm-hmm. to think about, right? Like anything not delegated to this to the federal government is up to the right. state. So in a lot of ways, the Supreme Court likes to defer to oh, the states okay. on these uh, on that's these issues. Point. So that's another that's another thing to, that's to keep in mind. Uh, but there is a current case that is going to be on the docket mm-hmm. this year and it's a it's a case coming out of the second circuit court originated out of um, new york originated out of new york and it will be in the supreme court's docket this year and it's directly relating gun issues now the the thing is is that with um 
District of Columbia v. Heller and McDonald uh, v. City of Chicago, Ju- uh, Justice Scalia, who wrote the uh, the opinion for both of these, explicitly wrote a very narrow scope. He was very careful to not write a broad scope that could be interpreted okay. many different ways. So he was, it, it was very much just about self, the issue of self-defense. Mm-hmm. This particular court is made up a little bit different. Right. We've got new characters on the on the court, and we have to take that mm-hmm. into consideration when we're thinking about further, tra- you know, future trajectories. And this particular case could have potential long, right. long, extending ramifications. Whether or we're not taking a position either for or against gun rights here, it's just this this particular case. Um, I, I encourage everybody yeah. who's listening to to read up on it. There's a great article in the Atlantic. It was written earlier this year. It's called "Supersizing the Second mm-hmm. Amendment." It's written by a um, a law professor at the University of Maryland, and I, I highly recommend reading it because it, it takes a non, a really a nonpartisan look at this issue, saying this is what the legal precedence is, this is what the potential um, legal ramifications oh. for this case are, depending on the ruling and how this, how the opinion is is mm-hmm. written. So it it'll be it's incredibly interesting. Um, we won't get into the nitty gritty right. of it here, but it's um, it's it's definitely one to keep. An, an interesting eye on. point that you you made that I don't I don't want to overlook is. And I just I'm just now realizing this and thinking about this. The judge's ruling and the way that they word things are so also just as important as, because they're and that's their interpretation of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And X amount of years from now, if that's the precedent setting case, they're going to look back at how that was interpreted. Exactly. So the yeah. narrower and more specific the scope is, they they can they can then interpret it from that. And then mm-hmm. interpret it from the Constitution. That's insane. Wow. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> um, and, and kind of to go off what, you're, what we were talking about the second minute, you know, we as a country and as a society today, we have such a great understanding of, I think, of uh, the First Amendment right, freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's because that is one that has been run through the courts multiple times about different issues and we're seeing Mm -hmm. new ways to especially with social media today new ways to have a voice and to have that speech so they're they're kind of trying to keep up with the ways of of interpreting that amendment Mm -hmm. Um, but that's just an example of something that's that we're familiar with because of the interpretations that have been done in the past Definitely, um, and that's one thing that this article I mentioned brings up is that. So you brought up you brought up the First mm-hmm. Amendment, and it's in the there's very little the, through the court through different court cases that have dealt with the First Amendment. There has been that legal precedent set that there really isn't much there other than like saying fire in an in a in a uh, crowded right. theater. There is ve- there is no mm-hmm. restriction on the First Amendment, um, and potentially what they they say that is the ramification of this case is that if it if the Supreme Court overturns a second circuit court's upholding of the New York mm-hmm. gun law and it's a broad um, a broadly written mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. decision. Yeah. That it could it could potentially propel the Second Amendment into that what they what this author is calling a first class okay. right. So where there is very little, there can be very little restriction. Oh, gotcha. Um, equal, so it puts the Second Amendment on on par with freedom of religion and freedom of um, speech. Freedom okay. of speech. I mean that's that's just projecting. Right. I'm not saying that, that that's what's yeah. going to happen, but that the, he's arguing that this case because because there's been so few other court mm-hmm. cases that. Any particular, any particular case, because there has isn't a, a, a bunch of other precedents set, right. could have long-ranging ramifications until Absolutely. other court cases make it through the court, and then it starts to, you know, 
find its niche a little bit more mm-hmm. and then you start to get more nuance there. But, you know, you, we could have a massive change in how the federal government interprets the Second Amendment mm-hmm. this very year. So it, it's important to keep it, I think it's just to reiterate, it's important to keep your eye on, um, you know, what cases are going through the instead of looking at the past, also keep looking at the future. Right. So I think we'll just wrap it up there. We're yeah. about to the end of our hour. And um, just want to reiterate before, like what we said before, and uh, we weren't trying to make a, a, a solid narrative, but right. we we're hoping that by exploring different court, Supreme Court cases mm-hmm. throughout uh, throughout space and time in the United States, that you, we kind of get a sense of how important the Supreme Court is in our day-to-day lives. And there's things that we think about that we, we, we hold for granted and take as an absolute that earlier in our country's history weren't that way. That's a great so, point. I'm such a nerd about these things. I love, you know, I don't ever do it enough, but I love going back and looking at these cases. And there are a lot of cases and there are there are some that have decisions that you may think are small, but that's precedent setting and that will be used in the future. Well, I just want to thank everyone for listening and thank. uh... And if you guys want to contact us about this episode, past episodes or want to give suggestions for future episodes, you can email Jake and I at s-w-y-m podcast at gmail.com and that's the email for our podcast but we we use it for everything so again that's s-w-y-m podcast at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail um, that we'll listen to at 360-836-0496 again that's 360-836-0496 You've been listening to To The Republic. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jake. Remember to vote and stay informed. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one. Carpet City of Vancouver is a local flooring business and family-owned for 44 years. Flooring options include carpet, hardwood, laminate, tile, stone, and countertops. Carpet City of Vancouver is more than just a flooring specialty store. They are expert trained in flooring and design for kitchens, living rooms, bedrooms, and bathrooms. Carpet City of Vancouver can help you find the floor for the way you want to live. More information available at www.carpetcityofvancouver.com.